Uh, I, I think that I, I don't. I don't think it's appropriate to begin a sermon on on this Sunday without uh, making some mention of uh, the tragedy in Colorado. Uh, the first one, Columbine, happened on my birthday in 1999, um, and I think at that time I had no no sense of what uh, what a horror it was. Um, I'm not sure that I do now, although having been uh, to Haiti several times, I can understand that there is a depth of, of suffering and tragedy that we don't normally have access to. And I don't know that there are any words that, can, um, that are adequate to tragedies like this. Um, I think that at times like this, uh, silence... Prayer and presence with people are the appropriate responses. And I, I think one thing I, I loved about, uh, I think it was Doug's prayer earlier, uh, was the, the idea that as Christians we've seen how horrible tragedies issue into um, immeasurable grace, how mercy. Uh, falls down uh, in the wake of things that are too hard and too awful to understand. And so that's, that's all I can say about that. Um, but I encourage all of us to uh, continue in our prayer and our, and our solidarity with, with those who suffer um, in Colorado. When I was 19, I came back from college. I had uh, gone to North Carolina for a year, and at that time in college, I had uh, actually, in just one year, I had completely figured everything out. Uh, it, it's true. I, I, I experienced things that it, it's, it's very difficult even now to, to get back into the mindset of where I was, but I do remember that I, I found this incredible community of Christian brothers and sisters when I was there. From, from, it was very ecumenical from different uh, traditions in the church. Uh, nevertheless, we found ways to, to worship together, to pray together. I mean, things that I had never... Um, it, it, there was a kind of intensity, a kind of passion to it that uh, I don't want to say that I don't experience anymore, but much less frequently. Um, and and what, what I found out uh, during that time is I found out that everyone that I had known before I went to college was doing everything wrong. Um, yeah. Once, once, you've, once you've felt this, once you've experienced it, you know that uh, other ways of expressing faith are just wrong, just inadequate. And so I, uh, because, I, because I care about especially my parents, when I, when I came home, I made it clear to them that they were just not Christian enough for me. They didn't, they didn't pray hard enough for me. They didn't have enough passion. They didn't have enough of this or that. And now, over, was it, is it over? Yeah, it's 11 or 12 years later. Looking back, I wonder, I wonder how it is that at no point did my father, you know, here I am, Dad, I can't believe you're not, you're not holy. You're so unholy. Like, when, up at school, we really know how it's done, man. There's prayer and there's worship. It's wonderful. I, I just don't know how you're, how you're uh, able to, to go day to day uh, in your paganism. 
and I, and I, and I wonder, I, I, especially now, uh, as, as, a, as a husband, a bad husband, and an improving father, I wonder how it is that at no point did he ever just stop and just look at me and say, yeah, this is what they do in the courtroom, take off the glasses. You've seen Matlock do it many times, clean. Oh, yeah? Walk a mile in my shoes. Tom, when I got back from college, I went to war. Yeah, I went to Vietnam, and I was a captain in the Air Force. Um, And when I finished my my time serving my country, when I came home, no one would give me a job because I was labeled a baby killer. Oh, but, but you've got it figured out. Tom, walk a mile in these shoes, carry those burdens on your shoulders for one hour, and then come back. And talk to me. Or, alternatively, I wonder how when I was, you know, berating my mother um, for being so focused on work and not so focused on, you know, just being in the presence of God, I wonder how it is that she never stopped and said, oh, walk a mile in, in these shoes. Yeah, remember when I was in college, when I was uh, working as a maid, um, in Santa Barbara to pay my own way through school so that I could be the first child, uh, male or female, in my entire family to graduate from college and become a working professional. Walk a mile in these shoes. Carry that life on your shoulders, oh wise fool. That, that, that is true. That's what sophomore means, apparently. I mean, yeah, it's wise fool. And there's a good reason for that. It's because sophomores are people who n- don't know how much they don't know yet. Walk a mile in these shoes. Carry those burdens. And then come back, and your entire perspective will be changed. It will be altered. I would say that the only grace that I have now that I didn't have then is that I can look back now and see how foolish I was. And to this day, I don't understand how my parents never just laid me out. In fact, maybe they did, and I just kind of tuned it out and don't remember because it's been a while. But I don't think they did. And I wonder, I wonder what it's going to be like when Alice is 18 and she's got it all figured out. And how, how is it that you, that you don't just shake and say, just wait. Just wait. And then speak. I'm beginning to suspect that it has something to do with us um, maybe thinking our children are maybe better than they actually are. I'm pretty sure that Alice is perfect, and I know that objectively that can't be true, but there it is. The psalm that we're reading today, if it has a theme, a tone, it's this. Walk a mile in our shoes. It's an accusation. It's a complaint. And what's crazy is it's Moses and the people of Israel looking up at God and saying, Oh, yeah? Yeah? Walk a mile in our shoes, and then you'd understand. It's a little bit offensive, if you think about it that way. But as we read through the psalm together, I want you to hear that. I want you to hear the complaint 
of this people. It's written from the perspective of Moses uh, during the, the exilic generations wandering in the desert. They've been wandering for 40 years. And the, exil- and the exodus generation knows that they will never see the promised land. That's not for them. But they've been struggling and they've been surviving and they've been waiting and waiting and waiting. And there's just, there's just no end. This psalm, we know, um, we're, we're pretty sure historically was picked up and became very popular during the exilic generation when the Jews had been deported to Babylon. And as they were sitting there waiting, waiting for the, the apportioned time, uh, you can, uh, it's, I think it was going to be 70 years, waiting for this time to end, they, they, they were saying, you don't know what it's like, God. If you... Do, do you have the note sheets? Oh, awesome. Let's, uh, let's read together. I, I just, this is um, the Common English Bible translation. little full disclosure here. Uh, it's a re- recent translation just came out. The general editor is my Ph.D. mentor, so I'm sort of obligated to use it. So if you don't like it, that's okay, but I, I have to. Okay. Lord... You've been our help. Generation after generation. Before the mountains were born, before you labored with the earth and the inhabited world, from forever in the past to forever in the future, you are God. God, you return people to the dust. You say, go back, humans. Because in your perspective, a thousand years are like yesterday. It's just like a short three-hour watch during the night. You sweep humans away like a dream, like grass that's renewed in the morning. Yeah, in the morning it thrives renewed, but come evening it withers, scorched. God, we're wasting away because of your wrath. We're paralyzed with fear on account of your rage. You put our sins right in front of you. Set our hidden faults in the light from your face. All our days are slipping away because of your fury. We finish up our years with a whimper. At best case, we get 70 years, 80 if we're strong. But their duration brings hard work and trouble because they go by so fast. And then we fly off. Who can comprehend the power of your anger? The honor that is due you corresponds to your wrath. Teach us to number our days so we can have a wise heart. Please come back. Please quick. For the same number of years that we saw only trouble. Let your acts be seen by your servants. Let your glory be seen by their children. Let the kindness of our Lord, our God, be over us. Make the work of our hands last. Make the work of our hands last. It would be easy to focus for us uh, on a lot of the, the sin, anger, wrath language. Um, the exilic generation and the exodus generation are being punished. That's why they're 
wandering around the desert. That's why they're in Babylon. But I don't want us to focus on that. I want us to look and feel the weight of the language of the complaint, of the accusation against God. It comes from the disparity between who God is and who we are. Um, in order to, do, to kind of get at that, I'd like to uh, draw your attention to a, a, an issue of translation. If you look um, at your, if you open up your pew Bibles, uh, the New King James, or you pick up most modern translations, uh, with the exception of, I believe, the NIV the TNI, and the TNIV, um, you're going to find that verse 2 has a, has a much different translation. What I have here for you, it says, Before the mountains were born, before you labored with the earth and the inhabited world. That language, um, if, you, if you have the Masoretic text, the Hebrew text, that language, the language for were born is uh, yuladu, and the language for labored with is waraholel. Uh, if you look in your uh, few Bibles, however, you'll find that the language has been, has been changed. It says something like, um, before the mountains came, abra- came about, or before you brought about the mountains. Um, and it says uh, something like, before the earth was formed. And there's kind of an interesting uh, little backstory to that. The vast majority of the time, in your New King James or your New American Standard um, translations, the English text almost exclusively follows the Hebrew, word for word. But every once in a while, every once in a while, the English translators, uh, they follow what's called the Septuagint. The Septuagint, this is a cool story. The Septuagint was um, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible that was used by the Jews in the uh, diaspora after they'd returned from Babylon but had been spread out over the world. What happened was, uh, there was, you can read about this actually at the end of Jeremiah. There's a couple chapters describing what happens to, the, uh, to the, uh, one of the ex- uh, parts of the exile, where instead of going to Babylon, they end up in Egypt. There's some royalty there. There's some Jewish rabbis and scholars. They begin a community. The community flourishes. It's so powerful. It's so exciting that it, it draws the attention of the, of the kings. And the kings become aware that the, that the Jewish community in uh, Egypt is worth listening to. They're wise. They have this, this strange God that we've never heard of, but he's, he's worth paying attention to. And after Alexander the Great has uh, Hellenized or made the entire world, the known world in the West, uh, Greek, uh, in Egypt, in the, the, the city of Alex, Alexandria, which Alex named, or Alexander named after himself, uh, the king there decided that it was time for everyone to have access to the Jewish scriptures. So the king gets together, he gets 70, uh, that's Septuagint in the Greek, 70, gets together the best 70 rabbis and scholars in Alexandria, and he says, I want you guys to just go out by yourselves, and I want you to come up with a, a translation of the entire Hebrew Bible into Greek, and then I want you to meet back together, and you hash it out, and I want you to come up with the standard edition so that everyone has access to the scriptures. Legend has it that they do this. And when they return, all 70 translators have exactly the same Greek, word for word, from Genesis 1-1 to whatever the last verse is in Malachi. I'm not sure I buy that, but that's what they say. Now, this only matters because every once in a while we have uh, this complete Septuagint. And when English translators are giving um, their, Hebrew, their English versions of what's in the Hebrew, sometimes they'll look at, the, at the, the, the Greek and the Septuagint to see what the translators did to help them make an informed decision. However, this can be a little bit dangerous because as we follow the Greek uh, Septuagint, we can see how the translators have sort of subtly changed the Hebrew in some places 
And there's a, a pretty consistent way that they do this. See, they're, they're kind of, they kind of want to be evangelists. They want the Egyptians around them in Alexandria and, and, and Greek culture, they want them to come and, and become Jews. But the thing is, there's some places in the scriptures that are a little bit embarrassing if you are, say, a follow, follower of Plato's philosophy. If you believe that God is unchanging and he is very far separate from humans and he has very little contact with the material world, there's lots of places, especially in the Hebrew scriptures, where God's really involved. And so every once in a while you can see these places where the Septuagint translators soften the language. They smear it out using words that are close but not quite the same in order that when the Greeks and the, and the Egyptians read the Hebrew scriptures in Greek, they won't be as maybe uh, uncomfortable with the image of God that's given. So they have a theological reason for doing this. And in this case, in Psalm 90, verse 2, it's an interesting thing that they've done. The language of the Hebrew is explicitly and uncontrovertibly the language of giving birth. It's the language of a woman in labor, in pregnancy. And it's being applied to God metaphorically. God is being seen in this image as the one who literally, well, no, metaphorically, gives birth to the mountains. God is the one who struggles... And, and pushes, pushes out the earth and the world. Now, for those of you who haven't fallen asleep yet, you may, you may be wondering, what's your point? This is important because the, po- the, the context of the poem, the language of the poem, is striking at nearly every verse, a massive contrast between who God is and who we are. And the point of this contrast is for us, in this case Moses, to look up and say, you're so different, you're so strange, you don't understand what it's like. I call it the reverse Elrond. Nobody? Elrond? Lord of Rivendell? Lord of the Rings? Anybody? Fellowship of the Ring? Okay, Doug's got it. Elf? You know, he's elfish? Played by Hugh, Hugo Hugh Weaving in, in the movies? No? Okay, all right. Okay, okay. A okay. little bit nerdy, I know. In, in J.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, the elves are a race that lasts forever. Uh, they, we don't know, I mean, I, I don't know how their life cycles work, because they do seem to be more mature than one another, but for whatever reason, they never die. Okay, that's fine, J.R. Tolkien, great. What's awesome is that you can see this, this sort of perspective that Elrond has about humans. He looks at humans, and he's, he's really cynical. He's like, ah, you just can't trust a human, you know? They're, they're, so, they're so busy, back and forth. They never know how to make a decision and stick to it. They can never take the long view. Because Elrond, he was there at the, at the original battle where they defeated the Dark Lord, right? He watched as the human beings had a chance to destroy the Ring of Power and then failed. And he's like, really? Come on! So as it comes back, Gandalf, I just don't know if we can trust these humans. They're just, they just don't have it. Psalm 90 is the reverse Elrond. It's where human beings look up at God 
and say, you're forever. Do you have any idea what it's like to be us? You, you, you return people to dust saying, ah, go back, humans. Because for you, yesterday, it's a thousand years. A three-hour night watch, and for us, it's generation after generation after generation after generation, living, dying, being born, going to the grave. For you, it's three hours. We're not even saying you're wrong. Yes, yes, we sinned. We deserve this. But if you could step into these shoes, you would have a completely different perspective on what existence is. You are forever. When you give birth, God, what do you give birth to? Mountains. You guys have seen Half Dome. Have you seen Ansel Adams' photo of Half Dome? It's in black and white, so it must have been made two, three hundred years ago, right? <laughs> Dad, you were born at that time. You see Half Dome today, and it's the same as when Ansel Adams saw it. It's the same as when Lewis and Clark, I don't know, I don't know history. Whoever discovered it, the Native Americans who were there, it hasn't changed a lick. It's the same. That's what God gives birth to. What do we give birth to? Grass. Springs up in the morning, scorched, withers away its dust. When you go into labor, God, you produce the world. When we go into labor, we produce the frailest, most fragile, shortest thing that you can possibly imagine. You have no idea. If you could walk a mile in these shoes, everything would be different. If you could wear that burden for one day, this wandering in the desert, this exile in Babylon, it would have to end. Because you would see that for us, it's different. Every moment matters. The clock is always ticking. In the back of our minds, we see the grave, and it's always getting closer. If you could experience that, if you could walk a mile in our shoes, everything would be different. I don't know about you. That makes me a little bit uncomfortable. Um... I'm not typically in the habit of pointing the finger at God. But I'm also not seeing the end of my life and wondering what it all meant. I'm also not stuck in Babylon longing to go home to Jerusalem knowing that the temple is rubble, that I'll never be home, and trying to make sense of things. I haven't been wandering in the desert for 40 years, wishing To see the land of milk and honey, to enter into the promised land and knowing it will never come. I just want to draw your attention to the very end of the psalm, just the last verse. This This is fascinating to me. It says, make the work of our hands last. Make the work of our hands last. 
See, the psalmist has been pointing the finger. If you could just, if you could just walk in our shoes. But of course, that can't be. But there is a little bit of hope here. A little glimmer. Yeah, our generation is, is fading away. And we will never see the land of milk and honey. Yeah, our generation is, is we're, we're going to die weeping on the banks of the river, longing for Jerusalem. But, there, but the God that we serve, he's forever. He preceded us. He's been here with us. He'll be here after us. Maybe what this God can do is take the work of our hands, our labor, and change it from that which is in vain to that which lasts. Maybe God can take what we've done in this life and make it a legacy for our children and our grandchildren and their grandchildren. Even though we will never see what we long and hope to see, what we do when entrusted to the Most High, can pass into into history. That, That is a hope, but it is a tragic hope. That is... That is a hope that is... It's planted in sadness. hear it. Hear Moses. Yes. We did the wrong thing. We've, we've tested you and we've, we've pushed back against you. We're, we're just little humans. We, but if you could just step into our shoes, then you would, you would understand what it's like to suffer the, the consequences of our sin, to, to understand, to feel what it's like to have your anger pouring out. In, in, we're wasting away because of your wrath, your wrath. We're paralyzed with fear on account of your rage. Our days are slipping away because of your fury. We finish our years with a whimper. Seventy, maybe eighty years. But if you could step into these shoes, you would see what that's like. And if you saw what that's like, you would relent. If you could experience what it's like to know the grave is just around the corner. And that it's my fault that I'm going there, never seeing the hope of my heart. If you had any idea what that feels like, you would change. You don't know, God, what it's like to taste your anger, your wrath. You can't understand what it's like to suffer the consequences of sin. This is not a happy psalm. But here's the thing that's totally crazy. Moses cries out. The people of Israel in the Exodus generation, they cry out. The people of the exilic generation in Babylon, they cry out. And in some incomprehensible way, the creator God of the universe hears their complaint and says, you know what? You're right. I don't know what it's like 
and now that's going to change. In a time that is far beyond what we can imagine, 1,500, 2,000 years, the one God of the universe, the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son, the Word, assumes flesh and comes among us. He comes among us, he walks with us, radically committed to the way of God because he is God. And yet, he willingly tastes the anger and the wrath and the consequences of sin and walks straight into the grave with us. Brothers and sisters, this is the mysterious gospel. This is the good news. That the one creator of the universe, the triune God, has come and has been with us. And no longer can we say, you don't know what it's like. You haven't. He has. He's walked a mile in our shoes. He walked 33 years in our shoes. From now and forever in his resurrected, glorified body, he is with us. He is like us. He has tasted the anger and the wrath and the consequences of sin. And he has been raised victorious. The hope, the lost hope of the Exodus generation, the lost hope of the exilic generation is with us now and forevermore. The one who birthed the mountains has been like grass. And now from forever to forever, God is with us, Emmanuel. God is with us and has suffered with us in the theaters in Colorado, in the poverty of Port-au-Prince. He is with us. And when we cry out, we cry out to a God whose ear hears our cry and knows who we are as we are. To which I say, Make the work of your hands last. Now, that's happened. And it is amazing. And watch what happens uh, for Peter when Peter reflects on Psalm 90, which we've seen. In 2 Peter 3, uh, Peter is talking to a group of people who, not unlike the exilic and exodus generation, are feeling oppressed. They're being persecuted. And he's saying, hold on. He says this, first of all, you must understand this. In the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and indulging their own lusts, and saying, where's the promise of his coming? Ever since our ancestors died, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Well, all things except that the one God has taken on flesh and lived amongst us as us. They deliberately ignore this fact that by the word of God, heavens existed long ago and an earth was formed out of water and by means of water through which the world of that time was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the present heavens and earth have been reserved for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the godless. But do not ignore this fact, my beloved brothers and sisters. That with the Lord one day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years are like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some think of slowness. 
But he's being patient with you. He doesn't want any to perish. He wants everyone to come to repentance. Peter has seen the living God walk in our shoes to carry our burden, to know who we are. And in response, when he reads Psalm 90, when he experiences that, ex- that complaint, he sees it in a different way, in a new way. It's not, God, a thousand years are like a day with you. How could you ever understand? It's, God, a thousand years are like a day to you. You are the most patient of all beings, waiting for all of us to return to your, to, to your fold. God, you've been with us. You know what it's like. You understand the grave and how it looms. You've defeated the grave. You've shown us new life. And now, you're just asking us to hold on, to gather in all to your bosom. And so, my friends, it's a thousand years in a day, two thousand years since Christ, two days for God. We might have to hang in there for a little bit longer. I'd just be prepared. We might not, but if we do, I want you to know deeply that he has been with you. He knows you. He has walked in your shoes. And if it seems like he's tarrying, if it seems like he's slow, it's because he has Elrond's look at things. He's taking the long view. He's waiting for those around you and your family those you know at work, those you know at school, those who've walked their own path for all time. He's waiting for them to come in to repentance. The Lord truly is patient and he is kind. And his love is from everlasting to everlasting. And so, yes, let's change the title of the sermon. Love is here. Love is now. Love has walked a mile in our shoes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for coming and being with us. Thank you for replacing a tragic hope with a hope that knows no end. Thank you for walking with us. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for being the one who knows every age from its beginning to its end, and yet who knows what it's like to be a piece of grass scorched and withering in the night. Lord, we confess the glory of your gospel, that your Son has taken on human flesh and has been with us, has walked with us, has worn the burdens that we wear. We ask, Lord, a special measure of your comfort, the presence of your Son, mediated by your Holy Spirit to those who suffer in Colorado and in Haiti today. You are good And you are here. And in the name of your Son, we pray these things always and forever. Amen.